talk about how they were sort of losing their way in terms of their identity. Questions of race and culture and those kinds of issues clashing with notions of who they were in Christ. And you've heard persons come up here and say, actually, I don't know how I came to ARC. I wasn't planning it. God did it. Providence. And you've even heard people come up here and joke me about my sermons. It's because we don't take ourselves seriously. But who are we apart from Christ? But we do take Jesus seriously. It's because of who Jesus is. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the very Son of God. He is fully man and fully God, and he has done something indescribable. He has taken all of that power and all of that glory, and he has veiled it in human flesh so that he can take our place to die for our sins and be raised from the grave for our eternal life and our justification. This is why we take Jesus seriously. He's the kind of God that humbles himself to love people like us broken and incomplete, wandering and lost, still struggling, falling upward. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is and what he continues. And so is that Jesus we want to pray to now? So if you would, would you not take yourself seriously right now? Admit to God as we pray the things you need to admit to God. And would you take seriously his promise of saving us from sin and judgment, saving us for God's love, and saving us forever, and being with us forever, to provide for us everything we need for life and God. Let's take that seriously as we pray. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we declare that you are awesome. You're awesome in every way. Awesome in wisdom, in power, in grace, in mercy, in love. You're awesome in justice, in kindness, in humility. You're awesome in glory. You're awesome in every way. And you have proven your awesomeness to us again and again, but most glaringly, most beautifully, you have proven your awesomeness to us through your Son. Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world, to save sinners from their sin and from a coming judgment and to prove to us your love and to rescue us through your love, through his sacrifice, that we might taste and see that you are good and that we might enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, we do. We come to you as a people who are needed. Whether we tell our neighbor or not, whether we admit it to our friends and family or not, we are in desperate need of you. Lord, some of us need you to give us power to break the, the bond, the hole, the strangle and chokehold of sin. We need you. We confess to you now our sins. And, and we ask, oh Lord, that you would do what you promised to do. That you would, Lord, forgive us and cleanse us and free us from that thing that, that so desperately seeks to hold on to us. We want to know the the cleanliness and the freedom of forgiveness. And Lord, you promised in your word that you would supply all of our needs, Lord, our physical needs and material needs, our financial needs. And so we come to you now. We give you thanks for what we have. For Lord, we could have less. You have been gracious to give to us. And, and yet we sometimes, even in your giving, still fill and sense our need of you and more of your provision. Would you, would you provide to all those who are in need right now? Or perhaps in need of a job. Perhaps in need of a rental payment. Grocery money. Who see some medical need, some physical need, Lord, in their own bodies or the bodies of a loved one or a co-worker. Would you supply their needs? You are Jehovah who heals. And you are the Lord who provides. So we call upon you. Do what only you can do. And Father, you asked us if we believe in, in the word. You asked us if we believe in your son and his resurrection. And we do. We gather to celebrate it now. You asked us if we believe that so that we might have hope beyond the grave. 
so that we might have hope despite the evidence of death. That we might know that life has the final word. And so, Lord, we pray especially for those who are grieving, Lord, that we would not grieve as those who have no hope. But we would grieve knowing that Christ has risen from the grave and all those who believe in him have risen together with him. And that we would grieve knowing that Christ is coming again for his people. And when he comes and the angel blows that trumpet and the shout goes out, all those who have died in Christ will rise again to meet him in the air. You have promised that. And you have promised us a, a mansion, a room in the Father's kingdom, O oh Lord, each and every one of us who believe. So, Lord, we pray, let not our hearts be troubled. We pray that as we believe on you, that you would strengthen us and comfort us. The loss of fathers, the loss of mothers, of aunts and uncles, of cousins, of brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews, Lord, and the loss of close friends, Lord, comfort us. Comfort us in the power of the resurrection and the hope of eternal life. And Lord, we come to confess one last time or one more time that we need to hear from you in your word. So we pray, prepare our hearts to hear and receive. Speak to us, O Lord, we ask from Mark's gospel. Show us Jesus. Help us to see him, to behold him, and to love him, we pray. And it's in his matchless and beautiful name that we ask this. In the redeemer of the Lord's said, Amen. 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 Love if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Turn them out to Mark chapter 10. As we continue our study of Mark's gospel, we come to an important section of the gospel. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. Y'all pray for the preacher this morning. I have a hard time keeping the pages set, all that good stuff, so I have to preach this one. Remember, I'm old, so. Stuff might be missing, you have to supply it. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. I have a lot of friends who are from the continent of Africa and different countries in Africa, some of whom are pastors. And from time to time, in conversations with them, some of them have pointed out that in their cities and in their countries, there's a great fascination among Christians, professing Christians, with power. Talk about power and God's power. That's one way that you can attract a crowd, gather people. In South America, the fastest growing part of the Christian family is the Pentecostal part of the family. I know some of y'all Pentecostal, y'all inside like, right, like, whoo, whoo, yeah. And in South America, among Pentecostals, as you might expect, there's, there's great conversation about power about God's power, the demonstration of his power in signs and wonders and things of that sort. You may not think of it this way, or maybe you do, but in America too, there's a whole lot of talk about power in certain sections of the church. Uh, here it's not so much power in that supernatural demonstration, I wish it were, but more often in American churches there's conversation about political power, about cultural power about the power of the church to make sure that the, the country, the culture, the government, or some other object of concern doesn't decay more, doesn't fade more, doesn't go off the rails more. There's a lot of conversation about power among God's people all around the world. Lots of Christians want power. But few, it seems to me, have a theology of power. Few Christians seem to reflect on what Jesus says is the source of power, the nature of power, and the use of power. As a consequence, we have power and don't know it. And as a consequence, we look for it in all the wrong places. As a consequence, we misuse it and abuse it when it's in our hands. We resent others for the power we think they have 
and we live unaware of the great dangers inherent in power. We need a theology of power. We need to think carefully about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection, and how we Christians should understand it all. In our text this morning, we're going to be helped to do just that. If you're taking notes this morning, I have three points and 19 applications. <laughs> Point number one. The gospel is God's power to save. The gospel is God's power to save. We're going to see that in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Number two, the gospel is God's power to serve. It's God's power to serve. We're going to see that in verses 35 to 45. And number three, the gospel is God's power to see. God's power to see. You see that in verses 46 to 52. So look with me at Mark's gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The ten heard it. They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And he called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. God's word. The gospel is God's power to save. Notice how our text opens this morning in verse 32. Jesus and the disciples and the crowd are headed to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is the capital city of Israel. It is the religious capital also of Israel. And it is home to Jesus' most ardent haters, his strongest opponents. The text says that Jesus now is, notice there, walking ahead of them. 
He's out front of the crowd. He's out front of the disciples. He is headed to Jerusalem. It is, as Isaiah says, his face is set like flint, is set like stone to go to Jerusalem. And the text says there that the crowd and the disciples were amazed and afraid. Mark doesn't tell us right here specifically why. They could still be amazed at the teaching that's been going on in Mark chapter 10. Remember, in verses 1 to 17, Jesus explained God's original purpose for marriage. He explained that divorce was not a part of God's original design, and that shook them a bit. And you recall in Mark chapter 18, down to verse 31, Jesus explains to them that it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they shook because they're like, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus explains that with God, all things are possible. They may still be amazed at what they have heard up to this point. But the text says that they are also afraid. And I think that's because they have a sense of what's waiting on them in Jerusalem. And they're amazed and afraid because Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered. Jesus is out front, headed to Jerusalem like he want to be there. Now, you know that if you knew some people were waiting on you to do you dirty, you get there kind of slow. You take the long way around. Jesus is walking straight into Jerusalem like it's his. And the disciples don't know how to put that together. And so you see what happens then in verse 33. Jesus pulls them aside and tells them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He says, now, when we get to Jerusalem, I want you to know what is to take place. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed and buried. Actually, before that, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. Then they're going to hand me over, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise three days later. Now, it might not seem like it to us when we look at a text like that. We see words like handed over, condemned to death, mocked, spat on, killed. It might not seem like power is being spoken of in those verses. That, that to us sounds like defeat. That to us sounds like misery. That to us sounds like things are going wrong. But I want you to know, beloved, God's power does not come dressed in man's clothing. Yeah. Jesus here is very much describing to them the anatomy of God's power in the gospel. These are the facts of the gospel. These are the realities of the gospel. This is what happened several days later when Jesus got to Jerusalem. Religious people handed him over to unbelieving people. Together they conspire and they put him to death. They nailed him to a cross where he suffered, bled, where he was mocked, where a crown of thorns was put on his head and passers-by ridiculed him. And he died a real death. And he was buried. And for three days he lay in a tomb. And on Sunday morning... On Easter Sunday morning, as we call it, on Resurrection Sunday morning, just as he said, he got up. Amen. He rose from the grave. Amen. Three days later, in power, he rolled back the stone, he rolled back the grave clothes, and he rolled out to show people that he had power. And what we're seeing in these verses is a description of power from the vantage point of the gospel. It don't look like what the world calls power. It don't walk like the way the powerful walk in this world. It is cloaked in humility. It is garbed in weakness. It is shrouded to the eye that looks for man's strength. But it is open to the eye of those who know God's ways are not like man's ways. His ways are different. Now, I want to suggest to you that this gospel sort of definition of power is how the apostles understood it from the first century. You recall what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto what? Salvation for who? Everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. Lesser known in Romans chapter 1 is verse 4. Where Jesus Christ, or where Paul says that Jesus Christ has been proven to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection that God performed on that third day. 
The Gospel writers, and Paul understood that these events described in 33 and 34 are in fact the revelation of God's power to save. That's good news, beloved. It's good news that God would use all of his might and his strength to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. That he would use his power to do things for us that we could not do for ourselves. To remove our sins from our account. To give us a righteousness that we did not have. And to vouchsafe for us, to guarantee for us, to co-sign for us a part in the resurrection. Which we could not produce. If you're here this morning, beloved, and you're not yet a Christian, you hear nothing else from this sermon. Please, please, please get this point. That what we call the gospel, which we see in verses 33 and 34, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection for our eternal life, that that very message, those truths, that reality, if you put your faith in it, that same power will give you a new relationship with God. That's how a man goes from a broken relationship with God to a healed one. It's through the power of the resurrection. It's through the power of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's how a person goes from being confused about their identity and, and, and who it is they are to think of themselves to be, to having a, a sure sense that the thing that is most important is not all the other markers of identity which have their importance, but the thing that is most important is that she is known as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ has become our identity. It happens through faith in this Jesus who was crucified one day and rose three days later. That's how we have our sins taken care of. The sins that condemn us to death, that condemn us to judgment, that would condemn us to an eternal hell. That's taken care of not by our strength, not by our power, not by an act of Congress, not even by signs and wonders. That's taken care of on the cross as Jesus dies for our sins and is taken care of in the empty tomb when Jesus rises from the grave. You got sins that trouble you. You're doing wrong, you know you're not supposed to. You're struggling with the sense that you ain't right. Not before God. Not even in your own self. There's a remedy for it. There's a solution for it. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ who will rescue you from unrighteousness and give you a perfect righteousness that wasn't your production. And Jesus gospel is the power to save and beloved this morning if you're not yet a Christian that power is at work right now confess your sins to God turn from them put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved write it down guaranteed God keeps all of his promises they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ trust in him today today be the day of your resurrection too. You put your faith in him. Hey Christian, what ongoing meaning does this have for us? What does it mean to understand that God has wrapped his power in the appearance of human weakness and flesh and in the cross and the resurrection? What does it mean that God has gift wrapped his power in our likeness? God, beloved, it means so many things. It means so many things. Number one, beloved, it means that weakness is not something that should keep us from this God. He is identified with it. He has entered into it. He has taken upon himself our own weakness so we can come to him. Oh, beloved, if you feel weak, go to him. It means, beloved, that you don't have to be strong enough to fix your problems. <laughs> You don't have to be strong enough to fix your problems. And, and, and listen, I know what it's like to labor and struggle in your own strength to try to fix something and to be frustrated that you can't fix it. And you keep trying and you keep looking for a new solution or a new piece of advice or another word of encouragement. Here it is right here. In the gospel is the power of God so that you don't have to be powerful, so that you don't have to be strong, so that you don't have to fix it because Christ has fixed it. Yeah. 
Jesus is the fix. Well, beloved, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? It means that God's power is not blinding, but binding. It's not so brilliant for the Christian that we have to stand all swinging back as if we are looking at Moses coming off the mountain. No, it doesn't blind us. It binds us. It binds us to him. Because in the gospel, this miracle happens when we trust in Christ. We are united to Christ through that same faith, never to be separated again from this God who has loved us through Christ. We are bound together with him, no matter what comes, until we are bound together with him in his kingdom. Oh, the gospel keeps being good news for the Christian. Not just something that was wonderful when we first heard it and were saved. It's something, beloved, we are meant to live in. God has cloaked himself in human weakness to reveal the unusualness of his power so that those who are weak can actually live in his power. Again, there's this gospel that is God's power to save. There's more than that. Consider that conversation in verses 35 to, what is it, 42 or so? 45. Jesus just finished telling the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified. And you think they might stop and they might grow sad and they might weep a little bit. You think they might even do as Peter has done in other times in the gospel and say, no, 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 Lord, that ain't going to happen to you. That ain't going to happen to you. But it's interesting that in verse 35, we're told that there's a conversation that gets started. That James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus on the sneak tip, and they sense that there's an opportunity. There's about to be a little power vacuum. And they say, look, Jesus, now when you come into your glory... Let one of us sit on your left hand, and the other one sit on your right hand in glory. Now clearly they did this on the sneak, because a few verses later, when the other ten found out, they were mad. I don't think they were mad at James and John so much as they were mad and they didn't think about it first. Folks love power. James and John now are giving us a demonstration of how power works in the world, but not in the kingdom. In the world, it's kind of who you know, ain't it? It's kind of influence that's gathered through association and relationship and favor. We live in Washington, D.C. You can't talk to people for three minutes before they start name dropping. First two questions in a conversation in Washington, D.C. is, what's your name and who you work for? And that second question is real telling because if you don't give an answer that indicates that you had a wrong above the person you're talking to, they move on to the next person. This city and worldly power is about comeuppance. It's about opportunity. It's about taking the next step. It's about getting a little bit higher than the people that are around you. And James and John seem to be concerned with that very thing. Let one of us sit on your right hand and the other one sit on your left hand when you come into your glory. This is opportunism and nepotism. Matthew chapter 20 around verse 21 tells us that their mother was in on it too. She was the one that put them up to. And so they are cutting out the disciples while looking out for family. That's nepotism. This is closer to the British monarchy than it is anything where power is passed from one person to another person in the family. Make it a little closer to home. This is close to American politics nowadays. I don't know what side you're on. I don't really care. But the truth is, this is how we play politics in this country. This is Joe Biden looking out for Hunter Biden. This is Donald Trump hiring his son and his daughter to occupy high positions of power with no experience and no qualification. This is opportunism and nepotism. And this is how the world does power. But they lack a theology of power. Notice now how Jesus begins to engage them. Jesus says, uh, Do you know what you ask? It's interesting. They first come to him and they ask for a guarantee before they make the ask. Did you see that? We want you to do whatever it is we ask you to do. 
It's a whole different kind of conversation that their cousin always wanted to bear out twenty dollars, right? They want to guarantee up front, and they want to ask for what we call down south the whole hog leg. We want to be on your left hand and your right hand when you come in your glory. We want to be in the highest positions possible over everybody else except you, but we want to be right next to you. They want the whole hog leg. Notice how Jesus begins to deal with them and to help them with their lack of the theology of power. First of all, he says, you don't know what you ask. Just find out. You don't know what you ask. You don't know what power is from a kingdom perspective. You don't know how power is used from a kingdom perspective. You don't know how to come into such power from a kingdom perspective. I know you think you know what you want, but you may not want what you get. Then he asks him a question. He says, now, okay, can you drink the cup that I have to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Now, they answer real quickly, oh, yeah, we can do that. Because they're probably thinking, okay, in your kingdom, the cup is going to be the richest, sweetest wine because it's going to be a party. In your kingdom, this baptism, you know, it's like what we've been doing ritually, just being dumped in the water a bit. But Jesus actually is thinking more Old Testament than that. Where in the Old Testament, the cup is associated with God's wrath. It's associated with suffering. And baptism, too, is associated with suffering. He's asking them, don't you know that first comes suffering? Can you identify with me in my suffering? Their answer is hasty. And so, yeah, we're able. You notice in the next verse, Jesus goes on and says, okay, yeah, indeed, if you're my disciple, you are going to drink the cup that I drink. And you are going to participate in the baptism with which I am baptized. Jesus is helping them to understand that this cup and this baptism is not the cushy, nice, soft privilege of power. It is an everyday garden variety experience of discipleship. There is no following Jesus without following into suffering. There is no way to be his disciple without entering into his sorrow, his pain, his brokenness, without being baptized into it, as it were, or drinking it in, as it were. And so he wants them to understand that discipleship and power are not things that are fit together by ladder climbing and name drop. The power in discipleship is actually a consequence, a, a next step after the prerequisite, the first step of suffering. Beloved, this is really important to think about power. Because folks who have power who have never suffered tend to be cruel and abusive to power. Folks with influence but no pain tend to be impatient and merciless with people who are struggling. Folks for whom power is simply a matter of a silver spoon they were born with have no idea how to live eating from your hand, and so they have no, no compunction naturally to use that power and influence to put something in people's hands. A theology of power without a theology of suffering will almost desperately, certainly lead to abuse and oppression. Jesus is saying, I came to suffer. You're not ready for what you're calling power, influence, or position until you suffer with me and suffer like me. It's suffering that prepares us for authority. Suffering that prepares us for influence. The suffering and the identification with the sufferer that keeps us from being an oppressor or an abuser or a tyrant. Any such thing. And so the first lesson that they need to gather here in this little theology of suffering is this first point. It's that first, in discipleship, 
called suffering, and we need to be able to embrace that suffering when it comes. And to recognize it as entering into the same life that Christ lived for us. We need to recognize that when we embrace that suffering, it is not simply for suffering's sake. And for the Christian, on the other side of suffering for the gospel and Christ's sake, is reward. Great reward. This is why in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when Peter and the boys were uh, put in prison and beaten for preaching the gospel and finally released, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, great is your reward in heaven when you suffer for him. Because God makes suffering for the disciples to produce glory, to produce reward. This is why suffering is worth it. Notice what he does. He keeps going in his teaching here. He says, not only do you not understand what you're asking, not only do you not understand that first comes suffering, but notice what he says as he goes on around verse 38, 39, excuse me, excuse me, 40. He answers their question, but to you to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. There is honor in the kingdom. There is exaltation in the kingdom. But again, it's not a matter of favoritism. It doesn't come that way. It has been prepared. You notice that word there is an active verb. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. So the disciples are not the ones who actively prepare it. Somebody else is preparing it for them, namely God. At the place of honor, at the left hand and the right hand of Jesus Christ, is not something we earn by our efforts. Is not something that we get again through political trade and favor. Uh, it's not something that uh, we prepare with our own hands. It's something God prepares for certain folk. Now, what certain folk? Because I want to suggest to you, it's not wrong to be interested in honor. It's not wrong to be interested in the share in the glory of God. That's our hope, actually. But there are wrong ways of trying to get there. Jesus now has in mind the right way to get there, the right way to sit at his left and at his right in honor, and that is to suffer with him, being devoted to him, and loyal to him. This is what we see throughout, again, the Gospels. This is what we see throughout the letters in the New Testament. This is what we see in the final book, in Revelation. Again, Jesus has made that promise in the Beatitudes. Paul picks up that promise in, in that hope in places like Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where it says he, he wants to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. He wants to attain to the, to the power of the resurrection, and somehow to, to be like him in that resurrection. Well, we see in Revelation, that scene in Revelation 5 and other places where there are those who are under the throne and near the throne who are placed in that position of honor because they have suffered for the day and not shrunk back. Actually, what James and John are asking for selfishly and sinfully is what Jesus and the Father actually give to all of us if we do it righteously. The place of honor is an expansive place in the kingdom. It's not a limited resource. It's not like the U.S. Constitution where you got a president and a vice president, however else the rest of you go, I forget after that. Where there are only a few select spots for a few select people that tend to get concentrated among the political elite. Not in the kingdom. In the kingdom, the place of honor is actually the place that every faithful disciple will end up as we suffer for the Lord and continue with Him. That means, beloved, your suffering is not in vain. Your pain is not futile. Your risks for Jesus are not unrewarded. Your losses for Jesus are not finally losses. Your suffering for Jesus is, is not unhealed. It will be right next to Him, in His kingdom, near His throne in his glory forever. The issue with honor 
from a kingdom perspective, it's not whether or not we desire it, but how we pursue it. We have to understand that in the theology of power, first comes suffering, then comes glory. There's a third part. First comes suffering, then comes glory for service. For service. Look at how Jesus ends his conversation with the disciples here in Mark chapter 10. Uh, the rest of the 10 get, they get upset, they vex, they hear about this, and they're like, y'all ain't right, man. Y'all trying to cut us out? Always trying to sneak around and get something for yourself and not others? Jesus then, when he hears them, in verse 42, he called them together again. That's one of the wonderful things, too, about Jesus. Just as an aside, when we start to lose our way and lose our mind and get in our feelings, he has this wonderful way of just gathering us again. We're not unlike the disciples here. We're very much like them. We lose our way in many ways. And Jesus is not in a hurry, even though he's focused on Calvary. He's not rushing there in such a way as he has to abandon the disciples. He says, no, no. Y'all come here. Let me, let me teach you again. Let me explain to you again. And notice what he says. This is our third part of our little theology of power here. He says, You know that those who, verse 42, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, You know how power works in the world. The rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers of the, of the Greeks, uh, the non believers, those who are not in covenant with God, you know how they do it. They're rulers. They lord it over others. They use rulership as a way of controlling others for their own gain. That's how it works in the world. It says in verse 42 now, here's the contrast. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what he does there? What he almost always does. Flips worldly thinking on his head. Says, you think life works this way. This is how you've observed it in the sinful world. But let me tell you how it works in my kingdom. It will not be the case in my kingdom that any leaders among you lord it over any others among you. You will not lead in my kingdom in such a way as to try and gain for yourself advantage and favor and power and privilege and all the things that the world the world esteems. No, no. If you're going to lead in my kingdom, can't be like that. It has to be like this. You must become servant of all. If you don't like the word servant, you must become slave of all. You must actually be the one among the disciples who is taking care of all of the other disciples. That's the recipe for greatness in my kingdom. That's the philosophy for leadership in my kingdom. Not self-service, but service to others. And he says now in verse 45, I want you to understand that this is the pattern of my own life and ministry. For even the Son of Man, the Savior, the Messiah himself, Jesus, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what he's saying there? That the gospel, which is the, the truth about his own life, death, and resurrection in service to sinners, that that truth of the gospel is actually the pattern of leadership and power and authority in the kingdom. You, you can't have a Christian approach to leadership that is about the leader being exalted and the leader being served. You can't have a Christian approach to discipleship that is about the accumulation of worldly power. But that view is incompatible with biblical Christianity. And this applies in every sphere, in every level of the Christian life. In obvious applications to politics, doesn't it? We can't be the kind of Christians who are drunk with worldly political power. We can't be the kind of Christians who are who are eager to give over the name of Christ to any candidate because we want to have power. We cannot sell our birthright for a mess of political porridge. But we also cannot be the kind of church leaders who would do that. 
It has application to the church, too. We can't be deacons and deaconesses and say, I'm tired of serving, y'all serve me. We can't be pastors and say, I'm a pastor. You know, y'all, I'm a pastor. Then serve somebody. Get somebody around the church. You know, help somebody with something. It doesn't work like that in marriage. So I'm going to meddle a little bit now. In Ephesians chapter 5, that lovely passage on marriage, we, we brothers, we love the text that says, to wives, the husband is the what? Well, now the brothers don't want to talk about y'all like the mask. Don't want to speak up to the mask now. Uh, the husband is the head. I'm the head. I'm the head. Woman, bring me a soda. <laughs> If you're Presbyterian, bring me a beer. <laughs> we act like that description of the husband's head is a command rather than a fact. We act like Paul wrote to the husband and said, be the head. Go read the text. It never says that. He's actually addressed to the wife. It's not a command, it's an indicative, it's a fact. It's just a, a, a matter of fact. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. There's no way to be a husband without being a head. But being a husband, that means you're commanded to be the head. Now, notice what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5. I won't take my time here, just a little bit. <laughs> think, about the, think about the metaphor he's using. He says in that text, when it comes to husbands in verse 25, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Now he's already described the husband as the head. Now when you think about the head on your body, you think about that metaphor, and you think about the part of your body that you take most care of, and the part of the body that you are most instinctively ready to protect, it's most likely your head. You brush your head or comb your head, you wash your face, you brush your teeth. If, if the rest of you ain't quite put together, you try to make sure your head put together, don't you? <laughs> If there's any threat to your body, and if it looks like it's coming anywhere near to your head, your whole body does what? It covers and protects the head, doesn't it? So if that metaphor were going to work in the worldly sense of things and in the worldly culture of Paul's day, you might expect that the man would be the head and the rest of the body should be serving the head the way our natural bodies serve and protect our natural head. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says to the husband that he is to cherish his wife, that he is to feed and nourish his wife, that he is to give his life as a sacrifice for his wife, to beautify his wife. This is an odd picture of the head feeding the rest of the body and the head jumping out in front to protect the rest of the body. Why? Because headship in the kingdom and leadership in the kingdom ain't about selfish service. It's about selfless sacrifice. And far too many husbands have done damage to that picture in service to their own sister. What Jesus lays out here in Mark chapter 10 about a philosophy of leadership is applicable to leadership in every area we find ourselves in. In our homes, on our jobs, in our schools, in our workplaces, in the churches, in politics, and so on. One of these why Christians haven't turned the world upside down more than we have. Might be because we think the world is already right side up. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. In my kingdom, the gospel has some implications for power and how it's used. It's used to serve others. It's used to serve all and become slave of all. We've not yet understood this theology of power until we've grasped that. First comes suffering, then comes glory in order that we might serve. Notice the third thing that the gospel does in terms of power. The gospel is God's power that we might see. See that? In the closing paragraph, verses 46 to 55, they make it to Jericho, I believe it is. They get there, they see a fellow named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is known to the community. You see there, you know his daddy's name, tell us his daddy's name. Everybody knows he's, he's blind been in that community for a while. Now, here's what I want to say. Two things about community that are important, just as a difference from this text. Number one, it's important that when you're hurt, when you have some need or some incapacity, that you're actually in community. That's your best place 
getting that issue served or cured. So if you're hurting in some way or you've got some limitation or some incapacity, please, please, please do not withdraw yourself from God's people. Do not withdraw yourself from community. Be so tempted to do that in our pain and our need, but don't do that. Here's the second thing to notice about community, though. Community can't fix everything that might be wrong with you. This man is blind. He's known to his community, but his community has no power to fix what's actually lacking in his life. Doesn't mean he doesn't need community, but it means he needs to put his hope in the right place. And Bartimaeus is a great example of this. Blind Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road begging. So he also has another need, a financial need, not just a physical need. He's in community in great need, and he hears that Jesus is coming by. Now, he's blind. He's never seen Jesus. He don't know which one is Jesus. Never laid his eyes on him, but he sees better than everybody else in this story. This blind man calls out Son of David. That's a reference to Jesus' messianic title. He is the promised one who would rule on David's throne forever. This is a sign that Bartimaeus knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. One of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible. Just simple. Have mercy on me. Now, here's another evidence that the community can always fix what's wrong with you. He's calling out to them loud, and the community says, be quiet. See, no, they rebuked him. Leave Jesus alone. He ain't got time for all that. Barbara's like, I ain't thinking about y'all. Son of David, <laughs> have mercy on me. I don't know what everybody else is talking about, but have mercy on me. Do not pass me by. Sometimes, beloved, Crowds will get in your way of calling out to God. People will make you feel ridiculous for calling out to Jesus in your need. But I love Bartimaeus because he's like, you know what? My need real. And I believe that this Jesus is God's answers to my problems. I've already settled some stuff in my heart. This is the son of David. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one who was promised to bring an everlasting kingdom in which this stuff I'm messing with ain't going to be a part of. Son of David, have mercy on me. And some of us need to learn to call out just like that. Son of David, Lord, have mercy on me. We sometimes take ourselves too seriously that we don't call out for mercy. We sometimes trust our own resources so much that we don't call out to mercy. And we sometimes are so self-reliant and self-satisfied that we say we'll call Jesus after we run out of what we got. Well, the truth is, we're all blind beggars with no resources that are ultimate and none that we should put in front of Jesus. And so Bartimaeus calls out, have mercy on me, and notice what happens. Notice what happens every time in the Gospels somebody asks Jesus for mercy. Not once, not one single solitary time does Jesus keep walking. Stops. And he said, bring that man to me. Bartimaeus, the crowd says, he said, come here. Bartimaeus jumps up, throws off his cloak, just start running. I don't know how he knew which direction to run. But he figured he was going to get there. He went that far by faith. He just jumped up and started running. And he gets to Jesus. And Jesus says, now, what would you have me do for you? Now, notice how different this situation is to the disciples. The disciples rolled up on Jesus uninvited and said, listen, we want you to guarantee us that you'll do whatever we ask. This man, sitting over in the heat, says, son of David, I believe you're the Messiah. Have mercy. Whatever way you want to do it. And Jesus' response is, well, tell me what you want. Mercy is considerate. Not only stops, but it takes time to sort of say, what you need? How can I fix it? The community can't do it always, but Jesus can. He can fix it. He can heal it. In his own time, in his own way. He bids us come and answer that question. What would you have me do for you? If, if that's you right now standing in front of Jesus, how would you answer that question? 
Lord would ask you, what would you have me do for you? You got an answer ready? You got a longing ready? You got to lead the voice? says, I, I want to see. Jesus says in the, in the end of the section there, go, your faith has made you whole. It's God's power at work to enable Bartimaeus to see, both spiritually and physically. Notice the order. He saw spiritually first. And Jesus is who the Bible says he is, the son of David. As a consequence of his trust in Jesus and his faith in Jesus and his encounter with the risen Lord, or soon to be risen Lord, he also had his physical sight restored. Beloved, you may need to see better than you see this To see Jesus as the Savior that he is better than you have thus far. You may need to see his provision in some way physical. I would invite you to come to him for both of those things. Notice now to come to him in faith. Believing that he is who he says he is. The only son of God who died for our sins and rose from the grave three days later and promises eternal life, everlasting life to everyone who believes, but not a life like this one. For Bartimaeus' healing is a commercial for that final and great healing that comes in the kingdom. A perfect healing with no more death, no more disease, no more weeping, no more, no more hardship on the side of the road, no more struggle with sin, a complete and final and total healing through faith in him. We may no need in this life, but in the life to come, one of the things we will never know is need, is life, is suffering. And it's Jesus who brings that to us. So this morning as we close, I want to invite you to see Jesus as the one who has come into the world in flesh as God's power to save. The one who's come in the world who has taught us that it's God's power that leads us to serve is the one who, in God's power, gives us the ability to see by faith who He is and what He can do for us in the healing and restoring of not only our souls but our bodies as well. He is the resurrected Lord who never dies again. And if we believe, we live with forever. I bid you to come. He asks you. What would you have me do for you today? Call upon him. Ask for his mercy. Ask him to save you. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to provide you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus, your son. We thank you for his resurrection and the power of his resurrection. Just as Amos mentioned a moment ago in preparation for a song, that same power which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us as we believe. Help your people to believe that, to rely upon that, to trust that, to live in that power. And show your power again today for someone who wasn't yet a believer, perhaps like Zuri, perhaps lived for a while claiming to be a Christian but didn't really know Jesus. They are made aware this morning, even right now, that that's their story. Lord, help him not to pretend any longer. But like this young brother, Zuri, help him to bend the knee and call upon your name and ask you to, to be their Savior, to make them do. Lord, I just ask that you would remember all those who are in some need this morning. We, we're always in need of truth. So we pray that you would make us not only conscious of our need, but aware of your power to provide. Let us see you as our provider and our Savior. Let us trust you, Lord, as we walk by faith. Thank you for this day where we can see each other again, worship together, build us up in the most holy faith, we pray, strengthen our hearts that we might continue to follow and not shrink back. 
so that when suffering comes, we'll set our eyes on glory. And we'll endure with gladness all that comes through your hand. Oh Lord, help us to serve one another, we pray, just as you have modeled for us. In Jesus' name.